So, Bim, welcome to our final interview of 2021. There's been some highs and lows, which we will explore in this special. But I think what is interesting is, you know, whilst a lot of people are enjoying their Christmas period, you'll still be working in some capacity. So can you just explain how Parliament works over this festive period? Uh, the short answer is that Parliament um, doesn't sit over the festive period. And I think that um, that's a very good thing. Uh, and MPs like their members of staff need a rest. But with all the COVID business, um, people will be watching. Uh, and I suspect there'll be various calls and phone calls and Zooms between colleagues over the period. Yeah, this is the thing is that you know, even though formally you're not in, you'll still be working in some capacity. There'll still be people that need your help. And I, I think that's one of the fascinating things about your job is that you, you kind of never off call. You, you're never fully on a holiday. But let's start with your individual politics then of 2021. Um you have six core ideas to your plan for Harpenden and Hitchin. Going through each one, maybe do you want to explain to people how you feel you've delivered on these pledges this year? Uh, the first one is protect our environment. What, what do you feel that you've done and maybe the party have done as well? Um, two main things. been a big contributor around COP26 and the debates, not just in this country, but internationally. And secondly... Um, pushed forward biodiversity net gain, which is the principle which we're bringing in, which is new, revolutionary throughout the whole world, um, though being a conservative, I'm always sort of um, nervous about revolutions. Um, and biodiversity net gain is the principle whereby if any biodiversity is destroyed by the building of anything, a house, uh, any sort of building, um, or other works, that has to be offset by putting in biodiversity near where you got rid of it or somewhere nearby. The basic principle being, we know we've, we've suffered such biodiversity loss in the country, we need to restore that and recover it. And that I think is really important and I've been at the forefront of that. Number two is help our local businesses. What, what do you feel that you've done towards this? COVID pandemic working incredibly hard to make sure businesses got the support they need from banks and others. I persuaded the Treasury through a conversation with the Chancellor and his team and Rob Jenrick, who was then in charge of local government uh, earlier on in the year about enabling grants to go to a wider selection of businesses than was previously the case. And I got that directly as a result of feedback I received from my constituents. Uh, and because I knew the Chancellor and Rob Jenrick, I managed to get a call with them within the day pitched this idea and how we did it was that the local councils had already been given funds so in effect what we did was we just allowed them to draw down on more funds to do something which is technically easy to do rather than a process of sending out more money which is a much tougher process so that was the one main thing I contributed there. Number three is supporting our young people. How have I supported young people? Um, I suppose uh, this is tricky because there's not an obvious thing I can point to in a concrete way beyond strongly speaking up for young people, whether it be uh, universities treating them poorly uh, as they have during COVID, whether it be um, campaigning to bring down the interest rate on student loans, whether it be 
uh, focus on young people's mental health. So really, it's being an advocate in those in those areas, which I think is very important. Now, number four is something that you've actually spoken to us about on Radio Verulam, improving road safety. We did a whole special on that because you wanted to kind of highlight the problems in the area and also raise awareness during these difficult winter months when driving gets a bit more treacherous. But maybe do you want to quickly talk through some of the highlights of that as well? Well, on road safety. So um, in Hitchin in particular, well, there are a couple. First of all, around Redbourne, there's A5183. There were um, some terrible accidents on that road, one of which was fatal, actually a couple of which have been fatal, uh, and campaigning uh, and improving that with the county council and with local campaigners uh, to reduce the speed and make that road safer. And then in a very different way, in Hitchin, uh, uh, there's a road called Grove Road, which is near the industrial estate in Hitchin, but actually lots of people live on that road. And working on making that a lot safer is very important. And that's what I've been doing with local councillors as well. Number five is delivering high quality broadband. And, and this is something that you've talked again on Radio Verulam, but at the time you weren't able to kind of uh, 100% say that it had been improved, but you were still working on it. Do you think that there has been more concrete kind of things made since we talked probably about May or June of this year? I mean, yes, because it's improving all the time because we're, we're, we are putting in more uh, too fast broadband all the time in this constituency. The number of complaints I get about it progressively is reducing. Uh, there are parts of Gusted Wood that are now that didn't have broadband that now have very fast broadband. That's very important. Uh, and really, it's just continuing. Um, there isn't some great new policy. It's just continuing to do what we're doing and to do it as, as, as quickly as possible. And the final one is tackling local crime. Where have you been involved on that one, Bim? So I think in relation to crime, uh, my, my biggest focus has been on rural crime. So that's uh, fly tipping. Uh, that is, you know, some hair coursing action in some of my villages. That is uh, burglaries and things around the village of Hexton. Uh, in fact, I'm doing um, um, a, uh, very soon I'm doing a, a village meeting in, in um in North Hertfordshire to talk about this, you know, inviting people from all over the villages to talk about how we how we work on this. And the broader point is also the work I've been doing on online crime. And I do a lot of work with financial services and online scams, because you are more likely now to be the victim of crime online than in person. Uh, so again, I've been doing some work on that as well. So let's move it to maybe some of the the interesting things that have happened to you over this year. Would you say one of your highlights has been in April when you were able to pass your own law to pass the British Library Board Power to Borrow Act? So I um, I love books, and I was very lucky when I was a boy because my parents had money <coughs> enough money to obviously buy me books. And that's the case for most people, but there are a lot of people who don't have that opportunity. Um, and books is really a gateway to knowledge and understanding of the world in which you're in. And indeed, world in the worlds in the past, which I think is just so critical for, for everybody. And the British Library needs to expand across the whole country. Obviously, we've got the British Library in St Pancras, uh, which is not far from us at all. But... It's a British library. It needs to be available to more people across the country. How do you do that? It's by 
the British, the big British library partnering with local libraries all over the country, developing um, something called their intellectual and property centers, which are effectively hubs for people who want to set up their own businesses or grow their small businesses with specialist advice and resources from trained people to help them do that. Uh, and often, you know, that, that can really be a lifeline. And the results have shown that where people have been through this process using the business and intellectual property centres um, supplied by the British Library, by the way, all over the country, using these networks with different libraries, um, they are twice as likely for their business to survive than the, the average. So it's really important. And the British Library needed money and able to do that in order to do that. And the piece of legislation passed in 1972 under Ted, Ted, Ted Heath's government prevented them from borrowing money. And what my piece of legislation did under my own name that I took through both houses is uh, it enabled them to borrow money in order to do that. But this borrowing will be done from the Public Works Loan Board, which is the body in the Treasury that borrows, that lends money to public authorities. Uh, and so it will be done safely and it has to be signed off. But by doing that, it will enable the British Library to bring more of its benefits to the rest of the country. And that is, you know, an interesting thing, not often do MPs get the ability to to pass their own legislation in their own name? There are very few. So in, in every parliament, you will typically get a dozen or so, no more than that. And under Theresa May's government, we didn't, didn't get any. I don't blame Theresa. It's just the point that we didn't have a majority, so it was very hard. Um, so obviously, I'm lucky that I am a Conservative MP, so it's easier for me to get the government to agree and to square my colleagues to vote for it, etc. Uh, but, um, you know, it's a big thing. Not many people have pieces of legislation to their name. Yeah, and and that's why I asked you about it, because it, it's, it's quite a unique thing. Let's move it, though, to your roles within Parliament. First of all, you served as PPS to Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, but now, more recently, you've moved to a similar role for the Secretary of State, Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. Are you looking forward to concentrating on your new role in 2022? Uh, in a word, yes. So um, what's coming up in the department? I suppose the biggest thing is the online harms bill or the online safety bill. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it safer, in particular for young people to be online. And, you know, I won't spell out all the, all the potential dangers of that for young people, but I think everybody recognises what they are. Uh, and also more generally, to make it safer for people to be online. That means cracking down on online scams and putting in place making social media more accountable, making big tech more accountable, uh, and making sure that young people can't you know, get access or, or trying to make it harder for young people to get access to damaging material. So that will be coming up next year. That's going to be a huge focus, I think, not just of mine, but I actually think it'll be a national conversation about how we manage young people in particular online. Uh, now, Moving it to, to here, to locally, to Radio Verulam, we've actually had two moments of democracy in action at the station. We talked to you in May about pet That sounds thefts. like a very dangerous thing. <laughs> democracy in action. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, it seemed to be a positive because in May we talked about pet thefts and then later on in the year you kind of came back to the channel, explained what was being done about that. And in September... Again, like we talked a little bit previously, road safety was an issue that came up and you've acted upon that as well. Do you get as much pleasure from helping out on these local issues as well as being 
you know, like being involved with the British Library Board to uh, Power to Borrow Act, d- does that give you as much pleasure to be able to help the local constituents and see that in action? Well, I think the way I like the way I put this is that it's a different sort of pleasure. It's a bit like somebody asking you if you're a sports fan, you know, do you like football or Formula One? Well, you like both, but you like them for different reasons and in different ways. Uh, I'd say that the national stuff. Has a, obviously has a national profile to it. You can affect millions of people with it, or hundreds of thousands of people. But the local stuff, you actually know the people that you're affecting. You know, there's a good chance that you know when I walk around in the constituency now, you know, I will routinely come to people who I have intervened on something on their behalf, or I have done something, campaigned for something that I know has benefited them, or I've stopped something happening that was going to be bad uh, for individuals, and that gives you a different sort of satisfaction i suppose because it's it's smaller in number but higher in terms of sort of intensity and quality i suppose so but but you know so as i say it's sort of football or formula one or apples and oranges um <laughs> that's how i put it i mean with the formula one this weekend i think a lot of people would have been put off at that but uh let's <laughs> let's concentrate on uh uh the discussions here adding to maybe that point last year when we did this year-long review one of the the big things that troubled you was the fact that covid had stopped you with those interpersonal interactions those moments meeting constituents maybe chatting to them some of the conversations are difficult but they're they're real and they're useful do you think that maybe one of the highlights this year has been being able to just get back to that normal discussion being able to meet people in person shaking hands talking to them uh, and getting you know, their the problems sorted in person. I um, cannot stress the importance of person-to-person interaction. Um, not everything needs to be done in person. So I'm not, though I am, can be old-fashioned, I'm not, I'm not sort of um, pure, you know, I don't want to be weirdly puritanical about it. <laughs> but, but I think that when you're able to engage with people in person, you're really able to to understand and get under the skin of what's going on. There is a level of, of separation that's always there if you're, if you're on Zoom or whatever, particularly if somebody you've never met. Uh, having said all of that, I think that the biggest thing I've loved this year is seeing how people who run businesses that depend on in-person trade, and I think of the pub owners that I know, the restaurant owners that I know, the people that rely on passing foot trade in in Kitchen Town Centre on Harpenden High Street, it's seeing them get back on their feet that is probably the most important thing to me. Um, and I think that, you know, hopefully we'll continue with that. We've talked there a, a lot about your individual kind of politics, helping out the local area, and of course on a national level as well. But let's move it to party discussions. COVID has obviously dominated the headlines, dominated what you have and have not been able to do. But what do you feel has been the most significant improvements that you and your party has brought about this year? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, I probably would say uh, the social care changes are possibly one of the most significant changes in a long time. It will need implementation, but the basic principle, without giving everybody a lecture on social care policy, the basic principle is that Whereas today, anybody's assets can be run down to £23,000 
for their social care costs, we are going to limit the total that people can spend on their social care to £86,000. On top of that limit, there will be a floor of £100,000, which means that everybody will be left, if they have more than £100,000, will be left with a minimum of £100,000 of assets. And obviously people without assets will be in the same position they are in now, which is that the state will look after them and make sure they get social care. I think that this could be a really significant thing. You know, the number of people in our area who have forced to not only sell their home, but to run down everything that they've worked for in the last two, three, four years of life um, is significant. And it, and, it, and it is something that needs sorting out because it enables us to put more money not just into improving, improving uh, care homes and, 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 and domiciliary care, care at home, but also to, to allowing people to, to keep more of what they built up over life, which, by the way, they've already been taxed on, which they will be taxed on in inheritance tax. You know, anyway, um, I just think it's a very important thing uh, and make a big, big difference to a lot of people. So I'd say that is the biggest legislative change that's come this year. And as well, you know, we're talking about COVID here. I try and remain neutral on all these discussions here. So I feel like it's fair to ask you with a torrent of a lot of criticism of the government as well. Do you believe that the government has handled the COVID crisis in the best way it possibly could? Well, the best way it could, but we'll know in years to come whether people think it was done right or not. I mean, it's very, very difficult, these things. Most people understand that when you're dealing with something unprecedented, a lot of mistakes get made because nobody knows anything else. Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember uh, when people were saying, oh, you know, look at this country doing it better, look at that country doing it better. And then actually, then a few weeks later, those people were quiet. And in places like Germany and France, they were saying, look at Britain, they're doing it better. And the truth is, or I'm not criticizing Germany, France, Italy, Britain, everybody's just trying to manage this process. I do think that the reliance on lockdown as a measure, I think should be used incredibly sparingly. And I don't think we're gonna see that again uh, because I think everybody recognizes the difficulties with that. Um, I think schools closing, um, though I understood it at the time, I bitterly resented. And I think a lot of other people do as well. Uh, and I think school closures are things that we should never even consider again. But overall, I think we managed this as well as we could, particularly the vaccine rollout and the boosters going out now. I've been looking at what's been going on in Europe, in Europe with boosters. They're way behind uh, on boosters. Now, by the way, they're very competent governments. They will get there. I'm just making the point that we actually, on the vaccines, on the boosters, the things that actually make the concrete difference, we've done a very good job. Though, of course, I accept there are things at different times that could have been handled better. Now, this is why I prefaced it, because I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about the positives as much as possible, because I would be remiss to not delve into controversies and maybe things that people see negatively this year. And I guess this is related to my question on COVID. But first and foremost, do you believe that there'll be more investigations done into PPE contracts and how they were handled? Because, you know, looking at the questions that we've been sent here at Radio Verulam this year, many feel that these contracts were handed out in a fashion that was not fair and not in the best interest of the country. Yeah, this is really interesting. And what I would urge people to do uh, and I used to be on something called the Public Accounts Committee, which is the most important select committee in Parliament. It looks on public spending. 
and it has the National Audit Office as effectively the, 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 the crack troops to go and investigate public spending wherever it appears. And the National Audit Office are the smartest, most capable civil servants that I've ever come across and are well respected as such. The National Audit Office has looked into the PPE contracts and has said there is no evidence at all of anything untoward. What they have said is that some of the contracts were issued in a rush and that some did not reach what they regard as the value for money threshold. Now, I think that that is a reasonable point because, of course, we were rushing because of the PPE. And in terms of the value for money threshold, again, I suspect that would be right in a, in a, in a minority of them because the emphasis was get the PPE, not worry too much and haggle on price too long because we needed the PPE in this country. There was a global fight for PPE because most PPE manufacturing was done in China. Um, China weren't releasing it and a lot of the factories weren't working. So people need to look at the actual evidence rather than just read the papers and go, oh, this contract went to this person. It's important that people also recognize that when contracts were awarded and the press will say a contract awarded for 10 million pounds, the 10 million pounds is only paid upon full delivery of PPE. That actually works. It's not just given to someone. I think it's really important people understand that on top of reading the report from the National Audit Office on PPE contracts, which makes clear there was nothing untoward. And the National Audit Office, by the way, looked at every single contract from the Department of Health. So, you know, I just, I can only say people should um, should refer to that. Let's move it to uh, a very serious issue, very upsetting one as well. We have talked about this before, but with the death of Sir David Amos, we, we saw an attack on our democracy. Are you worried about the future, or are you positive that better safeguards will be brought in place to help all British MPs? Um, I think that we will see better safeguards, we're already seeing better safeguards and people do things to protect themselves, but at the same time, you can't be absolute about these things. Um, I suspect that people will do less face-to-face -face surgeries and things like that, and to be honest, surgeries, I don't think there's a particular magic to surgeries. I think the question is, are you interacting with constituents and dealing with their problems? I don't think it necessarily has to be on a Friday afternoon at 3 p.m for two hours in the village hall, which is the traditional way of doing it. I speak to constituents during the week. My office deals with people all the time. That, I think, is going to be a model more people use rather than going to a village hall and saying, anyone come and see me from anywhere for two hours, because that just does present a security issue. Uh, not so much for your constituents to be able to get you, but for people who live somewhere else. Um, David Amos was actually killed by somebody who lived somewhere else. He was not from his constituency. They travelled up from London, I think. So, uh, so I think we'll see more of that. I guess that is part of the the ever changing technological age that we live in as well. You know, Zoom calls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And on that issue, I hope there is positive things that come out of the the terrible sadness there with uh, Sir David Amos. We have previously discussed, though, that you have a worry about appealing to the next generation of voters. Cost of living has increased massively. And looking at the 2019 general election, 56% of 18 to 25 year olds and 46% of 30 to 39 year olds voted for Labour. How will you address these concerns, Bim? Uh, 
So on some level, younger people have always voted Labour um, for the last 40 years. That's not new. I think that the broader issue is one of intergenerational inequality in wealth and assets that I know that young people feel very strongly. And I still class myself as young, as 35, but I'm very lucky. You know, I'm not typical of someone my age in terms of, you know, financially and whatever. So I'm not, I'm not talking about me myself, but I do know a lot of people that feel very strongly about it, particularly when you look at the marginal tax rate for somebody who's gone to university, which is quite high, really. Once they're paying back their student loan, it's high. And we've got to bring that down. We're a low tax party. We've really got to demonstrate that in our actions. We've got to get taxes down for working people, particularly working younger people. Uh, and we have to give them assets, sorry, a chance of owning assets in our system uh, and our economy. Because if we don't, then ultimately it's, the, it's economic, it's economic uh, security, which, which gives you freedom. And it gives you the freedom to express yourself push your ideas, set up a business, raise your family, volunteer, donate to the local charity. All of these things come with economic security. And if fewer young people have economic security, you're going to get radical and, and, and weird politics as a result. Uh, well, this kind of brings it back to the earlier question as well that I said about young people. You know, one of your core values is to improve the lives of, of younger voters. But you struggled to stay there that there was specific instances of maybe the party improving life for youngsters. And you said earlier in the year that the budget finally gets to grip with long-term productivity issues. But will this come soon enough for a generation who are being priced out and disincentivized from crucial economic activities? Like you said there, maybe they'll be pushed into differing ideologies or, or more extreme ones because of that. Yeah, so I mean, the answer is we've got to we've got to do better. Um, I do think home ownership is a big focus of the government and has been, and that is a big way of enabling younger people to to, to gain more assets and move up the the ladder, so to speak. And I think that that is a key thing that we are working on, but that can't be the only thing. And I do think we have to do more and do better. With the home ownership situation, I think that's quite an interesting one. J just to quickly analyse that, do you find as the Conservative Party, you're almost in like a, a rock and a hard place because you've got, you know, your traditional supporter base who quite often don't want developments in their areas for whatever reason, some, some are legitimate reasons for it. And then you've got these younger voters who cannot find housing it and there doesn't seem to be a right answer that appeases it for everybody so do you feel that that is a huge problem for you as a party kind of combating that or do you believe there will be an answer to it um the people who oppose developments are not quite as we caricature um Cheshire Amersham by-election, which we lost the Liberals, basically um, was lost on people being scared by campaigns. On effectively, Liberals ran a NIMBY campaign of saying, "Don't build anything in my backyard," and they won. Now, the people that voted for the Liberals, I'd love to say if it was just it was just sort of you know old, very traditional Tory voters. The truth is, you were seeing people in their twenties, thirties, and forties all say, "Well, I don't want there to be more house building, and the Liberals are going to stop it." Now, notwithstanding the fact that the Liberals 
claim they're going to build even more houses. Um, but that's beside the point. Um, I think it's actually more widespread than that. It's not really a, I don't think it's per se an age thing. I think that it's really about showing people that development can be beautiful, development can be empowering, development can be inclusive. And making the argument that people have got to live somewhere. Now, compared to my, when I first was elected four years ago, I think the politics around house building is now significantly um, it is easier to make the case I've just made than it was four years ago. As long as we're protecting the areas that really need protecting, and that's why I'm campaigning to extend the area of natural beauty, the Chilterns area of natural beauty, to the bits of the Chilterns in my constituency to the southwest of Hitchin. Because that, combined with saying, no, we do need new housing in the right places, doing, you know, the right sort of housing in the right places is the sort of approach I think people can manage. You are protecting, strongly protecting the beautiful bits of countryside and the green belt, but also accepting that houses do need to be built somewhere. And I think that it's that dual approach that has the best chance of keeping everybody together. Now, according to polls, the party went from 11 point percentage advantage lead over Labour in June to 4% behind as we entered the new year. How can the Conservative Party gain the trust of the electorate when there are many incidents that have lost the confidence of many voters? Um, it's midterm. There's at least two years for another general election. Um, I wouldn't get too... You know, you can't think about polls midterm because otherwise you'd never do anything. <laughs> so I think what we've got to do is we've just got to deliver what we need to deliver... And if we don't, we screw it up, then yeah, we'll, the polls won't recover and we'll lose. If we do get things right, then people will recognise that at the back end of the parliament and we can win the next election. It's, it's really up to us in terms of delivery. That's really what it's about. So now I've got some quick fire evaluative questions. Before we look towards 2022, we'll, we'll put our mystic hats on then. But um, what do you feel is your proudest moment of 2021, Bim? Ah, I'd say probably the um, I'd say probably the work early on in the year of pushing it's either the British Library and passing the bill into an act or it's getting more grants for businesses that badly needed it uh, in COVID. Moving it to the negative, what what has been your hardest moment? Probably David Amos, because that's not great. You know, that is pretty grim. And it made everybody feel very sick for quite a long time. So that is definitely the worst. What is something you feel you got wrong and would like to improve on? I think we could have probably handled the whole Owen Patterson thing a lot better. And I was slow to see how big and difficult that was going to be until it was really too late, until the day of the vote or the night before so I think that you really got to see these things early and manage them better. So with that question I was talking about you personally, do you want to... No, but that was me personally. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm very much, you know, here and as part of those conversations with the Chief Whip and Number 10 and others. Yeah. So with the parties, well, is there something wrong that you feel that you will improve on next year? Well, I think we've got to improve on loads of things. Um, 
because the difficulty of where we are is that COVID has kiboshed a lot of plans that we have. And it's about how do we recalibrate where we're trying to go without junking things you want to do, but at the same time recalibrate them because you've lost 18 months because you've been fighting COVID. Looking towards 2022 then, what do you feel are the positives that we as a, as a whole society can look forward to? I think that biodiversity net gain, as I was saying earlier, which is the process whereby if you build anything, you've got to improve, you've got to replace that lost biodiversity and hopefully build on it. Well, not build. Build on it uh, in, uh, in intellectual terms. Add to it. Um, I think that that is really going to be groundbreaking. And I hope that we start to see some pilots of that come in before it goes fully into force in 2023. I think that that could be really groundbreaking, seeing sort of heartwood forests all over the country, maybe in more miniature version. And adding to our biodiversity in nature is, is really important. I think that could be, that could be really cool. Uh, in September of this year, you said that working from home means a radical culture shift. Do you think that this is one of the big things that will shape the economy next year as well? Yes, but the, the economic issues are really, I think, going to be inflation next year. So working from home plays a part in that, but it's not a critical aspect to it. And then adding to this locally through the year you had constituency surveys what do you feel that you've learned that will help you improve things for your constituents next year through the surveys i'd say that people are very very in this constituency they're very well informed they are very well informed um when i speak to colleagues from other constituencies i think they are less well informed than my own constituents and this is a constituency where people, they understand what's going on. They read things. Uh, they've got subscriptions to newspapers. They engage. Uh, so, yeah. And then looking forward to Christmas, two concluding discussion points, make it a little bit lighthearted. But Christmas is a time of cheer, but there's also the reality that there's many less fortunate than ourselves. Is there a charity that you'd like to highlight? Yes, yes. So if people would donate to a charity called Harpenden Spotlight on Africa, which does fantastic work in rural Uganda, I would be very much obliged. Uh, we do maternity centre. Uh, I'm a trustee and I'm very involved. There's a maternity centre. There's a, um, a primary school. We're now raising funds to build a secondary school. It's really fantastic. All the poorest parts of a poor country. We do fantastic work. Dr. Bethan Reese, who lives in, in Harpenden, and her husband, Heaven Reese QC, our leading lights, as is Wendy Housen as well, and various other people who live around Harpenden. Please do donate. It's a brilliant charity. And so we talked about H-pound vouchers a little bit earlier in the year in September. Uh, you said that you're going to get your hands on some, maybe spend it in the local area. I mean, have you used any for Christmas shopping? I haven't because I haven't done any Christmas shopping, <laughs> um, is the short answer. So when I get a chance to do some Christmas shopping, which I suspect I will do, you know, with two days to go, which is my normal approach. Yeah. Uh, I will get some. I mean, you know, I don't want to show any favouritism here, but I too engage in that same Christmas buying uh, antics. But exactly. I mean, why spend more time shopping than you need to, in my, in my view? <laughs> but the, um, the uh, final question for you then, uh, I guess... 
let's make it interesting. Maybe one political and one actual kind of gift that you would want. But what is top of your Christmas list this year? Um, what is top of my Christmas list? You know, I'm, I'm one of those quite annoying people that when I want something, I sort of generally just go and, just go and get it. I, I don't want sort of expensive things normally. Uh, <laughs> I buy books all the time, so it's not going to be a book um, on my Christmas list. I do, so we moved to a new house, and I do want, I do need a torch, a really good torch. And I'm going to get one of those. It was really bright. So I think I need one of those. I also need some new trainers and some other boring things. Um, but I don't need any more suits because I've got more than enough of those. <laughs> and politically, uh, it's just I want us to, to, to say bye-bye to COVID completely and never have to worry about it again. Well, I think that's one that we can all agree on. Goodbye exactly. to COVID. Very, uh, very impartial one there. But, Bim, thank you for your time today and all the time that you've given in 2021 to answer the community questions. I would like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a happy, healthy New Year. A happy and healthy New Year. You too. Thank you so much. Thank-